0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast.
1: This week we have uh, Dr. Tu uh to give us talk. As we all know, uh, Tu uh, joined us uh, last year
2: 2017.
1: 2017, yeah, yeah, okay. as a research fellow at CGPP. Uh, she got her PhD from ANU and her major uh, research is in the area of sociology and social studies. Uh, She's got a recent book, which is the same title with today's topic, uh, which is Workplace Justice, Why and Labour resistance in Vietnam. Uh, I'll go to you.
2: Yes, thanks Steve, um, and thank you everyone for coming along to today's seminar. Um, so my seminar today is a snapshot of my book, um, which just came out with um, Hargrave Macmillan, uh, Another Critical Studies of Asia-Pacific is an outcome of my PhD thesis which I completed at the ANU in 2017. I have a copy of the book here and I'm happy to pass it along for anyone interested. Um, So this is the outline of my presentation today. I'll start with some brief background of, of labor relations and labor law in Vietnam and then I'll explain the rationale of my research and then discuss the findings. So to begin with, Vietnam transitioned from a central planning to a market economy in one thousand nine hundred and eighty six and this reform is widely known as mới or renovation in English before reform, all economic activities were under the management of the state, um, and the labor relations were established based on a socialist social contract with workers giving a living wage benefits pension as well as lifelong employment in exchange for their political loyalty to the state and state enterprises. The reform brings with it the legal contract um, which establishes the new labor relationship. So the labor court um, came into effect in 1994, which uh, set out the legal obligations and legal rights of employers and employees with the state acting as the mediator of labor relations. Um, So far, there's only one legal trade union in Vietnam, which is the Vietnam General Confederation of Labour, BGCL. This trade union is affiliated with the Communist Party of Vietnam, which is also the only um, legal political party in the country. And the BGCL is one of the four mass organisations under the control of the Communist Party, that oversees um, social economic activities and claims to represent sur- certain social economic groups. So, the VGCL claims itself to be the legitimate political representative of the whole Vietnamese working class. Um, it also has branches at different administrative levels of the state, and I'm going to show the structure of the unions in the next slide. In the early days of reform, um, Vietnam attracted a good flow of foreign direct investment. Um, These FDI sectors mostly concentrate in the garment, footwear, electronics and furniture products and mostly producing for exports. The flow of FDI effectively incorporates Vietnam into the global supply chain with the workers who are the slow skilled and lowly paid um, citizens occupying the bottom end of the global production. Um, FDI is not just crucial for our understanding of economic development in Vietnam, but it's also important um, in talking about one of the contentious issues in labor relations, that is, the rise of wildcat strikes. Since the labor code came into effect in 1995 until 2012, there were 5,000 strikes recorded across the home country. Um, these strikes occurred without the union organization. Um, They are often spontaneous. They are mobilized by the workers themselves and sometimes by um, the underground labor activists. Um, These drives, 70 to 80% of these drives occurred in FDI companies, and about 70 to 80% of them are successful for two reasons. The first is that they disrupt business activities, and the second, they also disrupt political and social stability, which is a significant concern of the party state. So when strikes happen, um, there's a local team established at the provincial district level made up of the union officials and labor authorities. They come down to the company to talk with the workers and talk with the employer, trying to persuade the employer to meet with workers' demands. So the aim is to settle strikes as peacefully uh, as possible Um, to get the workers to get back to work. Because of that, um, STRI so far is the most common form of labor resistance in Vietnam and continues to be a pragmatic way for workers to raise their voices when the unions are not on their side. So this diagram shows the VGHGL structures in Vietnam. Um, As I mentioned before, it has local branches at city and district levels, as well as in industrial zones. Um, And from now, I'll call these unions the official unions in short because they are affiliated with the state system. And these unions are filled by state officials and employees. Um, at the lower level, at the enterprise levels, the unions are run by the people holding human resource and managerial or supervisory positions within the enterprises. So in other words, the unions in Vietnam either work for the state or for the employer, not. Um, stand on the side of the workers. So that's why the reason um, the unions do not organize strikes in Vietnam. And so far, there has been not any strikes organized by the union or go through the legal procedure of strikes set out in the labor code. Um, In the Vietnamese labor code, it uh, says out that the aim of the state is to establish a harmonious and stable labor relationships. And this is the phrase that I think highlights the dilemma of the state in managing labor relations in a market economy. How can you have harmonious labor relations when you know the interests of the employer and um, employees are conflicting? Um, so when it comes to resolving strikes or handling labor disputes, the the state has taken an approach that, in a, on the one hand, um, trying not to destroy its image with foreign or potential investors, but on the other hand, trying to hold on to a socialist um, promises of taking care of the worker, taking care of the working class. Um, in the labor court, there are a number of um, important ILO conventions that have been ratified by, the, by, by, the, by Vietnam, including conventions for minimum age for work, night work, um, underground work for women, weekly days off, Labor inspection, occupational health, and safety. Um, the fundamental ILO conventions that have so far not been ratified by Vietnam include the freedom of association, um, the right to organize, to collective bargaining, and abolition of forced labor. Of course, um, the implementation of the law on the ground is lax um, with, very min- uh, with very limited, stringent measures by the state. To punish employers for not complying with the law, um, violating workers' rights and interests. So so far, a number of accounts on um, labor law in Vietnam has e- evaluated the law from a um, structural institutional perspective. We still know little about um, to what extent law is a useful tool for workers to raise their voices when the unions are not on the side, or whether and how workers turn to the law to raise their problems. So the question that I'm trying to address in this research is how labor law shapes labor resistance in Vietnam. And I'm going to bring in workers' voices, perspectives, and the stories on the ground. And my research question is built upon um, a tradition of research on the sociology of law which is interested in exploring the gap between law in the books and law in action. In this perspective, law is one of the cultural resources and schemas to which people make sense of their work and their social problems. The law is examined in its interaction with other modes of normative orderings in order to tease out its possibilities and constraints as an instrument of social justice. So in size of social disputes, um, we see that the way in which people use the law depend on varying factors such as their classes, social backgrounds, personal interests, as well as past experiences with the law. So in this research, I'm using workers' resistance as a setting to which to evince the values and ideas of rights as we can draw from their accounts and understandings. And the case study that I'm using is Dong Nai Province, which is an industrial province in the southeast region of Vietnam. It is about 30 kilometres away from Ho Chi Minh City. Um, this is one of the three cities and provinces in the south that attract foreign direct uh, foreign direct investment in the early 1990s, and is also a hotspot of strife. In terms of you know looking at the way law influences workers' resistance or behaviour. This province also provides a good case study because it has made a good record of you know supporting workers in terms of legal aid and legal access. Um, so th- uh, when looking at sh- um, these forms of resistance, there's one practical difficulties of you know directly observing strikes firstly because strikes occur spontaneously. Um, and secondly, there's also an ethical concern of me talking to workers during um, during the, the, the strike. So instead of observing strikes or participating on them, I talked to the workers who have participated in strikes and um, asked them to tell me about their experiences on the shop floor, what are the strike demands, and whether the strikes were successful or not. The second form of resistance I'm looking at is workers' letters and petitions sent to the official unions and the local labor authorities. Um, this second form of resistance is not so popular amongst the workers, um, because this risk exposing their identities to the unions and in turn jeopardizes their job. Um, however, to me, this is an important source of testimony of the workers' accounts of their exploitation hardship and maltreatment on the shop floor. Um, and and the, the letters and petitions I look at also include those um, from the workers who received the legal aid training under a legal aid project in this province. This project was founded by Oxfam Belgium in collaboration with the um, provincial level union. Different from China, which you know sees a, a private and dynamic um, NGO community. NGO, labor NGOs in Vietnam um, do not develop as much and normally they their, 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 their main function is to provide policy advocacy to run legal aid projects um, in line with the law and the state interests. Um, so at the time of my research, this legal aid project uh, was run from 2009 to 2000, um, 2013, and it was the largest legal aid project in the country that have a good number of workers participants. Um, this table shows the number of strike demands recorded in my case study, province from 2010 to 2014, and I got the records from the offshore union's annual strike records. Um, As you can see, wage occupies the highest demands of strife. Um, And I would like to note that most of the demands for wages are demands for higher wage. In Vietnam, minimum wage um, is the legal wage through which uh, the business have to pay for the workers. Um, The government also adjusts the minimum wage every year. Um, In reality, most enterprises comply with the law and pay workers higher than the minimum wage. However, the minimum wage is not the living wage and is only able to cover 70% of workers' living needs. As such, workers still struggle to feed themselves and their families, despite the business compliance with the law in that regard. Um, I don't think I have much time to go through all the demands here, um, but we can come back to that um, at the the Q&A session. Um, So the the bottom uh, row Shows the total number of strikes, not the total number of demands, because there are strikes in which worker raises a couple of um, demands and rather than just one. And you can see that the strikes have decreased over the year when the state um, knows how to manage strikes and how, know how to preempt labor disputes over the period. And I also note that about 70 to 80% of these drives occur in foreign direct investment um, sectors. Um, so now I'm coming to discuss the main findings of the research. Um, the first issue concerns the way in which workers make sense of their relationship with the management, their workplace problems, and the role of the state and the unions so most of the workers who I interviewed um, and those who wrote the letters perceive this relationship in moral terms. They expect the management to respond to workers' living needs, and when it comes to remuneration, to treat them in a fair and reciprocal manner. For instance, one worker said that, we have bonded with the company for many years. Why does the management not show compassion for us, but even oppress us in our everyday tasks? Another worker raises a sense of unfairness when saying that they've worked for day and night when the company has rushed orders, but quote, when there is no order, the manager no longer needs us and finds a way to sack us anytime they want. End of quote. Only a minority of workers evaluate employment relationships based on their understanding of the labour law and expect management to fulfill their legal obligations to the workers. These different constructions of labor relations influence the way workers frame their grievances. Common problems and grievances are concerned with unfair and low wages, excessive working hours, discipline, coercion, abuse of female workers' rights and workers' dignity, and problematic bonus payment. Most of these problems arise from companies' violation of law or exploitation of unclear pay regulations of the law but the workers do not frame them as illegal practices. They instead refer to a combination of their material needs, their skills and productivity, their emotional bonds with and contribution to the business and the treatment that they deserve but do not receive as dignified human beings. Only a minority of letter writers and the workers with legal training interpret their grievances through the lens of labor law they are able to point out what is problematic in management conduct from their very understanding of the law. At the same time, these workers also bring home an argument that their grievances are outcomes of the management's lack of care and their failure to meet their moral obligations to the workers. The way in which workers relate to the state and official unions in their demands is best seen in their appeal to these institutions either in going on strike or in writing the letters. Um, Workers do not hold the state directly accountable for their problems. However, they still believe that the state and union officials, as those indulged with power and authority, are able to circumscribe managerial power and save the workers from their suffering. They tend to appeal to the state and unions based on compassion and sentiment, And this, I believe, is influenced by the state socialist ideology, especially in its promise to care for the welfare of the Vietnamese working class and its protection of an image of the socialist society as rich, equal, democratic, and civilized. However, in most cases, the states and unions' failure to deliver justice is sometimes a problem of moral integrity and erode workers' trust in those institutions. My second set of findings is concerned with how workers use the language of labor law to voice their grievances and make claims. The term that I come across most regularly is rise and interest, which is evoked any time the workers justify their strike actions and appeals to the state and unions. These terms, rise and interest, are two different categories of labor disputes as defined in the labor code. Um, In particular, a dispute over rise between employers and employees arises out of different interpretations and implementations of the laws or other lawful regulations and agreements. A labour dispute concerning interest arises out of the request of employees for the establishment of new wages or working conditions that are different or going beyond those set out in labor laws and other lawful regulations. And I note that this separation of rising interests in the labor court is aimed at constraining and illegitimizing, illegalizing um, worker strike actions. However, in reality, workers use those terms rising interests in combination with each other. And they use them freely and collectively to amplify the moral judgments embodying norms of subsistence, reciprocity, and fair treatment. The third and last set of issues I want to discuss here is related to workers' notions of rights. Based on their articulation of workplace justice and their demands for justice, I find that workers invoke different notions of rights. The first, which is most clearly articulated, is legal rights endorsed in the Labor Code. These rights are articulated in conjunction with legal allegations of business rights infringement and references to articles of the Labor Code and other formal regulations. The second notion of rights is not explicit, but can be inferred from workers' appeals and their experiences of unfairness. There is a tacit understanding of social economic rights that valorize the guarantee of livelihoods secure employment, and ethical treatment. The last notion of rights, which is in the minority, concerns the rights to equality, respect, and rights as human beings. They emerge from these workers' (coughs) acute feelings of demoralization and maltreatment and are likely to have been learned from their understanding of the socialist propaganda of the state and the Vietnamese constitution. Here I use the term "rights" as human beings because it's the exact terms that the workers use. Um, in Vietnam, the word human rice um, is, is still considered politically sensitive. Um, so they're trying to avoid that term by you know, using our different kind of expressions. And in coming up with these different notions of rights, I also note that there is no clear-cut boundary between them, even though workers often express them in different and separate ways. While the second and the third notion of rights may be broader, um, basic and more fundamental than the legal rights endorsed in the Labor Code, I also noted that there are certain clauses and regulations within the Labor Code that imply the moral principles of workplace relationship. For instance, the Labor Code says that wage must um, satisfy the minimum living needs of the employees or that the workplace relationship must be established on the principle of goodwill and voluntary commitment. Um, So the observation of the possible overlap between those rights cautions against a dichotomous view of law and morality. Um, In in thinking of workplace justice, we need to look for the possible overlap between law and moral principles in our understanding of workers' views and ideas for justice. Um, And with this finding, I'd like to provide some critical reflections on what we know of the kind of rightful resistance which has been well-established on the um, popular contention scholarship in China. Um, So in short, um, rightful resistance refers to a kind of resistance in which disadvantaged citizens use the law or officially sanctioned discourse to challenge the uh, conduct of political and economic elites. so by using law and actually um, legal sanctions, the, the citizens justify their grievances and demands and they hold the state accountable to the problems. This study of rightful resistance has challenged the conventional understanding of law as a set of fixed, uncontested rules given by the state. Um, so law, in that sense, can be appropriated by social actors against the state interests. And rightful resistance is also a useful setting for us to know about the increasing rice consciousness of seasons. So they are now acting more actively to claim their rights and what they deserve under the law. So some of my findings here also resonate with um, the findings from the Rightful for resistance literature. However, I want to add that we need to examine rice consciousness as part of the seasons' broader views and social engagement, <coughs> as well as their experiences. Of the social relationships rather than only from the legal understanding or access to the law. Or focus on legal rights, as we can see in some studies inspired by the rightful resistance literature, risk neglecting other values and notions of rights that citizens observe from outside the law. So, in this study, I suggest that despite their different acts of resistance and ways of problem framing, all the workers exhibit some form of rights consciousness and a will to stand up for those rights when they are abused or neglected by the management and or the unions and the state. Um, of course, there is some limitations to the study um, that I want to note. First of all, um, because I didn't get to observe strikes as they happened, I didn't have a chance to know whether the workers did raise any political demand beyond the law. For instance, regarding their right to form a union or to have independent trade unions, another form of resistance that I looked at, which is letters and petitions sent to the official unions and the labour authorities, they they also take place within the formal institutional channels. However, as I noted from the beginning, with the lack of a vibrant um, labour civil society and the impending threat of repression and retaliation by the state against dissident voices. We would expect these forms of content resistance to be popular and accessible to the workers, allowing them to raise concerns of injustice without risking their safety, job, and economic security. Um, A final point I want to make um, is the critical reflections of this study in relation to what we know so far of law and society in Vietnam. So the conventional understanding is that in Vietnam, which is a socialist um, country, it doesn't have a rule of law tradition. Interactions between and within state, uh, state and society are heavily influenced by customary norms, precepts, and informal practices. There's an assumption that law has had limited penetration within society despite the comprehensive legal reform taking place since the early 1990s. Um, Through the study of labor law in Vietnam, I have attempted to show that law matters to a greater extent than as we suggested in conventional understanding. In a sense that labor law serves as the moral touchstone for workers to uh, raise their voices against injustice. As I mentioned before, some of the workers who observe who observe the law and use their understanding of, um, of the law, also use the legal knowledge to amplify a broader um, arguments for social justice, so um, fair treatment. Um, and even though we see that the law has had many, many limitations in the way it is implemented and enforced by the state, state law still brings about social change through informing and shaping people's expectations and judgments of their workplace relationships. Of course, this subtle effect of law does not always lead to overt actions or articulations to contest problematic practices, but is an important indication of an increasing consciousness of rights, justice, and fairness. And sometimes social change resulting from law manifests in overt actions, inspired by legal aid and legal access, aimed at altering existing practices and improving worker situations. Of course, in a context where law is often banned and non-legal practices are often deployed by the powerful to serve their personal interests, such an end is difficult to achieve. So earlier I mentioned that um, workers going on strike has been mostly successful because of the state's conciliatory approach to strike, as well as uh, because of the fact that it disrupts business activities. With regard to letters and petitions um, sent to official unions and the labour authorities, the chance is not—the chance of success is not that much, because when workers send the letters to those institutions, the first step is that the union officials and the labour authorities will come down to the company to verify and investigate the problem, um, and sometimes they work behind closed door with the employer without the workers' um, presence. And you know, some of the workers, because they want to protect their, protect their jobs, they do not um, write their names or the positions within the companies in the letter. So most of the letters are also anonymous. Because of that, even though there is some handling of the letters and complaints by the official unions and the authorities, the chance that these complaints will be handled and ultimately improve workers' conditions is, is very small. Yeah, so that's all for my presentation. Thank you. Uh,
3: The employers that you were looking at, or the the companies, were these Vietnamese companies or were they, for example, Taiwanese companies or Hong Kong companies or Korean companies that were simply using Vietnamese labor? Uh, Because that would make big differences in terms of the kind of appeals that you can make. Can you use moral appeals uh, to a a foreign worker? Also, whether the workers, are they local people, or are they people from different provinces far away that don't really have any strong social connections in in the province where they were working and so on?
2: Yes. Thanks for those questions. They are great. so in the provinces that I'm looking at, um, most of the foreign enterprises come from Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and China. Um, and the, the, the workers in the companies of the case studies I'm looking at are mostly come from um, China or other foreign, uh, foreign countries. And I think um, the, the observation you made about how the ownership influences the moral appeal is very interesting because um, when I'm looking at the letters, um, the workers also appeal to the unions based on the fact that they share the same nationality. So they point out that, for instance, the Chinese managers or supervisors um, abuse them or verbally scorn at them or oppress them or whatsoever. Um, So in that sense, I think that nationality does matter in that regard, even though it is not across a, gross whole, a whole, whole lot of cases that I examine. And also, because in the foreign enterprises, normally people who are working at the middle level managers are the local Vietnamese. So the majority of cases is that the, the Vietnamese workers face abuse and exploitation from the Vietnamese people, not the foreign people. Um,
3: so, um, the, so the, the 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 line supervisors yeah. and so on department supervisors are our are local are Vietnamese, Vietnamese, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and most of the the workers that I interview and work for these um, FDI companies are coming from elsewhere they're coming from the rural areas either in the north or in other certain regions of Vietnam um, so Different from China, of course, you know that Vietnam and China have a um, household registration system which tied one uh, legal season, one legal residence to one place. Um, Vietnamese migrants also face the same problem, and of course they have economic hardships when settling down in the new destinations. Um, Actually, the social networks that workers build up from their rural hometown is a key factor for them to mobilize among each other during strikes. So a lot of um, the workers, you know, from the northern provinces, who have a strong revolutionary spirit from the uh, war era, um, they are the main actors that mobilize the, the workers when they have injustice or grievances um, to go on strike. Um, so I think social networks and the cultural bonds from the country uh, from the countryside is a key factor there.
3: Mm.
0: Okay, Lee. Um. I so a question about the, the forms of protest and like bearing grievances. You said writing letters is, is not an anonymous process because you, you can be identified that way, and so then people uh, strike. And I wonder then, especially at the local level, are the identities of people who strike known to authorities? So it's more of a general interest question.
2: Oh, yep. Um... Um, thanks for that i I think that the, the, the letters are anonymous because the the workers don't want the don't want the union officials to know their identities when coming down to work with the company management and also there's a but I already, there, there's a recent change in the law that says that anonymous letters are not eligible for handling so i I still don't know whether that affects the way workers appeal to those institutions or not. Um, of course, um, in many cases, the fact that the letters are not handled or not are resolved satisfactorily um, is the reason that leads workers to go on strike. So the letters precede the, the strikes. Um, it's not um, the, the strikers, because there there's a, you know thousands of workers, so um, it's very hard to identify the strike leaders. Um, so they are, you know, protected amongst the workers themselves, the strike leaders. But because the, the state and the employers in that province are becoming more acute or more um, proactive in preempting strikes, over the years they have developed a blacklist of the strike leaders. And these strike leaders um, do not get a chance to have a job when they, you know, move their companies and things like that. Um, they also face you
4: know, not not violence right now, but other forms of repression or retaliation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, no, thanks too for coming and talking to to us. Um, so, so two 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 questions. One one that might be really easy to answer, and the other one maybe yes. so. The first one is: Is there a difference in the success rate for strikes between? Companies that are being set up with foreign FDI yeah. and and local companies. Okay. So, in other words, are they are the strikers able to kind of take advantage of the fact that this is like foreign money? They can protest against the foreigners, but when it's like a domestically owned it was a locally owned company, do are they as successful with their demands? Mm-hmm. And then, so, so is there a difference between these two things? And, and what might that tell us about the nature of this strike and the willingness of the state to intervene? foreign companies, both domestic ones.
2: Yep.
4: And then the second question I suppose it picks up on, on David's issue as well. So when you talk, and it's just fascinating, this thing about legal language versus moral language, it's like, it, it's everywhere That's protests everywhere. So like I used to do study English medieval history. This is exactly how they, you know, you'd have some traditional demands which are based on customary kind of practices or kind of sense of justice. And then you'd have some other things where they appeal to legal rules which they kinda heard about, which were new. (laughs) And you get these two different things. So what's this generally speaking, what's the source of the claim? Is it traditional are there like traditional like insofar as we can talk about this Vietnamese cultural practices? You mentioned just a minute ago that, you know, the people in the north, because they'd have, you know, communist ideology has minimal traction then it might be based in communist ideology or communist language or is it based in these new legal frameworks which are kind of emerging in this, in this reform period or is it a combination of those those three and when what determines why they select one script rather than another so that was longer than i meant to go on yeah so thank you yeah
2: that's that's a great question um so in the first one the success rate um I don't have the exact figures because, you know, whether we know it's successful or not, also depends on how workers see the results as well. Of course, in the strike records, most of the times, they just put it as you know, successful workers' demands are met and workers get back to work um, on the day after or whatever. Um, but I do think that um, the state has approached in intervening in strikes has changed over the years. So previously, they take some more active, proactive approach. They come down to the scenes to talk to the workers and the managers, regardless of whether it's um, foreign or domestic companies. Of course, I believe that the foreign companies receive more priority because they tend to employ you know, thousands of workers, whereas the domestic companies are smaller, only a few hundreds. Um, so with the concern of political and social stability, I, I would... Um, believe that they, they, they prioritize resolving strikes as quickly as possible in the FDI sectors. Um, in some cases, the success rate also depends on the presence of the manager um, at the strike So for instance, let's say a uh, foreign companies whose manager is going overseas for a business trip or whose decision depends on Bigger companies overseas, then they need sometimes to deliberate and talk to the manager, the top manager, over the resolution with the workers. So it, it takes time in that regard, in resolving strides, whereas with the local companies, then it's easier to talk to the manager directly. Um, so as I mentioned before, over the year, the uh, the, the state has left the issues to the, the unions. So now the company unions get more experiences in you know in um, talking between the workers and the manager than when strikes happen. If the company unions do not manage to resolve strikes, then the state comes down afterward. So it is just um, changing and evolving over the years. Um, on the different sources of claims, um, I'm. Um, I don't mean to suggest that the workers draw on the, the, the communist uh, framework, because I don't think that it's a very um, popular way of people talking about their social problems nowadays in Vietnam. But it's more the socialist propaganda of the state. Um, there are a lot of slogans about you know Vietnamese society as a rich, democratic, equal, and civilized societies, about um, the state's role in taking care of the people, their mental and material lives, and things like that. Um, So those socialist ideologies have spread around the population for many years. And at the same time, the people are also influenced by the moral economy um, values as well, values that come back from the agricultural periods, when it is crucial to be able to feed yourselves and your family. Um, And because the workers are coming from the rural areas, they bring that values with them. And when they make the claims for their wages, they don't base their claims on the law, but this is the basic um, things. That, you know We need to pay for our rent's food or their children's schooling. We need to pay for our necessities, like the rice and the eggs and things like that. Um, the, the question of how workers choose between those sources of claims is very interesting because I think it shows that, um, it shows whether and how law has a certain influence in shaping people's perception and ideas of justice. However, I think that it is, Really difficult practically to really tease out um, those different sources of blame because, you know, in the law there are still some certain some um, regulations or you know principles that are based on the moral, um, based on morality. So instead of saying that um, workers choose either or these different sources of blame, I'm just looking at whether or how they use the law um, to amplify. A Broader moral arguments, and whether the, the moral arguments is a, is a way for them to amplify or make the case for their legal plans um, or yeah legal arguments. I hope that answers your question. No, that's yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm just interested in the sense that your fieldwork is concentrated
0: foreign invested enterprise because mm-hmm. I was thinking more about the state owned enterprise yeah. because yeah. you might have the situation where you have the SOEs when you have Tomoy the economic reform, mm-hmm. where the government might be trying to get rid of uh, you know, unprofitable yeah. state-owned enterprises thereby the workers will, will trying to appeal them you know, to their maybe the socialist ideology and, and yeah. so on versus, quote, would be quite different from the uh, foreign investment enterprises, the strikes there, because they could be happening simultaneously yeah. at the same time, you know, different people at different agreements yeah. and also related to uh, you know the early question, Ian's question, is that the success, right, obviously depends on the state of the economy. Yeah. Because I remember right in China, when China first entered the W-2 in the early 2000s, you hardly heard any strikes because they could. There's so shortage of labor, mm-hmm. and even the National Geographic talk about, uh, you know, the, in the Yangtze Delta where people would just walk out of the factories, there's no need to strike, you just walk somewhere and so say, you get another job that paid you an you know, X amount more. So, I have a question to, to what extent, you know, that the, the, uh, the state of the economy you know, has something to do with it. And also, the strikes, is also between a ritual thing of, oh, we'll go on strike, and actually seriously striking. So, the labor market conditions are tight. The union, you know, workers are just to make a little bit of noise, and then the, the, the management will just say, okay, guys, you know, we'll give you this. Okay. But when conditions are tight, you know, in, in the sense that you know, the economy is not so good, then the management will put up more real, real re- resistance, sort of fact. So I'm just wondering whether you, you have look, look at this, you know, sort of uh, issues of which I talk to sort of and enrich your, your study, not just looking at you know, this foreign invested enterprises, maybe more, and also probe the the incidents of strikes. Is it connected to uh, you know, yeah. what's happening, you know, you can general economic conditions or whatever? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um. Thanks. Those are great questions. Um, I think that in in Vietnam, it's it's usual that the union records strikes in FDI sectors because it's considered politically legitimate. In SOE sector, you know, we have the state and state employers, and then the, the, the workers are considered state employees. Then it is assumed that the interests are harmonious to each other. Um, that is the situation nowadays. Uh, in so the they pa- don't
0: register strikes in SOEs. I'm sorry. They don't register strikes at SOEs.
2: No, no. So, so most of, stri- most of the most of the strikes um, okay. recorded are from um, domestic, <laughs> uh, private domestic or FDI sectors. Okay. Um, of course, I don't rule out the fact that the SOEs also violate the law, and there are a lot of grievances and injustices happening there. Of course, in uh, you, you mentioned it right, that in the early days of reform, um, there are a lot of um, workers being made redundant because of restructuring and stuff like that. And the workers, um, there, there's other research writing on that, and the workers also use the language of socialist um, ideology and use their understandings of law to appeal to the state. Um, However, that form of resistance resistance is not very popular amongst the state workers nowadays anymore. Um, I know a few um, workers working in state enterprises, like from 1960s until now, and when the state enterprises undergo some restructuring, their conditions have got worse. Um, Instead of going on strike, they use letters and petitions. But at the end of the day, um, their demands were not met, and they were uh, afterwards from the enterprises. So this is not a very good situation. On um, the, the success rate of stride in relation to the state of the economy, that's an interesting question. Um, the the figures that I have on um, strides nationally in Vietnam, um, interestingly, um, it parallel with the in re- inflation rates in Vietnam, so when inflation is high, there are more strides. Um, and also, in the period of the economic financial crisis in 2000, 2008, 2009, there are more strikes than usual. So that is the, the, the period when there are a lot of strides. Um, and also, the success rates depend as well on the local political economy as well. So in the three provinces and cities in the south, which um, attract foreign investment in a very early day of reforms, um, they indeed go through different stages of development. For instance, Ho Chi Minh City is already very well developed. It's a very big city and vibrant city. Dong Nai Province, which is the case study I'm looking at, is, is doing well, but not as well as Ho Chi Minh City. And Bin Duong is another one um, that is quite a, a little bit behind the other two in terms of attracting foreign investment. So when you, the one that is far behind, is, uh, is taking a more like, is taking a harder approach to the, the, the striking workers because they want to attract foreign investment. Um, they, they're taking a soft approach to you know, employers, violation of laws, things like that. Um, whereas Ho Chi Minh City, which is much well developed, um, is more on the side of the workers, and domini is somehow neutral in between. So the way in which the state resolves strikes and whether um, that resolution gives workers satisfactory um, results for their demands depends indeed on the coordination of different um, state institutions at a local level, as well as the economic um, situation at a local level. Whether, whether or not they really prioritize FDI investment, it, uh, it really depends on the success rate of strikes and the approach that the state takes to handling strikes. Um, and of course, if the workers see that going on strike gives them some success, gives them a higher wages and better conditions, they'll continue to go on strike next time when um, they have certain grievances or injustices. Um, and there are also other many other factors that influence whether or how they go on strike as well. Um, for instance, a workers, a young workers, tend to go on strike or tend to be more active in mobilizing strikes than the older workers, mostly because um, the job markets for the manufacturing industries, which is you know labor intensive, um, the job market is skewed against older workers because of the assumption that. Elderly workers are no longer productive in a task. So, if workers are over thirty-five or forty, then it's best for them to be loyal to the employer, even though they, they are treated badly or they are coerced in a job. Well. <laughs> it's, it's the chance for them to move on to find a better jobs elsewhere well is very small. So that is just one factor, And, of course, there's other factors concerning, um, you know, the workers' solidarity and how they battle each other as well in the workplaces.
4: Thanks. Um, A couple of things have already been covered, so I'll just ask one kind of question. Um, Could you perhaps comment a little bit more on how the state responds to the workers' strikes? Because as you were doing your presentation, I kept thinking about um, similar experiences in neighbouring Cambodia where the state has responded with a lot of violence or even you know, using the law to further punish um, people for protesting either labour conditions or other kind of similar issues. So could you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yes, thanks a lot. Um, so different from Cambodia and also China, the Vietnamese state does not break down on strikes. Um, of course, when strikes happen, there are security... Um, Civil security forces coming down to the company to make sure that everything is in good order. They don't really do anything um, violent against the workers. Um, of course, they try to re- prevent some workers who are too angry to, you know, for instance, um, destroy the companies or whatever. So, so, do they actually try and negotiate with the workers? Yeah, yeah, they, they try what? to negotiate mind. with the workers. Um, okay. And I, I. Actually, I look I look around to the, in the news website and social media. I know that there's cases when the state actually harasses the um, labour activists, you know, the underground labour activists who mobilise the workers to go on strike. Uh, but I don't have a real testimony of that in my fieldwork, so I don't really... But there's
4: been no, like, public kind of legal cases against some of these um, um, strike organisers and they've been jailed or...
2: Yeah, yes, um, there's a famous um, labour activist she was for labor organization overseas, and she received jail. Um, I think that she's released now um, with some pressure from the U.S. And, um, I, I really don't know whether she's still active or not in mobilizing workers, but um, yeah, there, there's actually those cases, and they are not really published in the Vietnamese um, news media. Mostly, they are spread around the social media like Facebook and stuff like that. Um, and the interesting thing is that the Vietnamese workers are given the right to strike. So the right to strike is given in the labor code. But there's a complex procedure of how to go on strike legally. So, so far, there's no strike that is legal based on the definition of the labor code. Um, And I mean, the the state has kept saying that going going on strike is illegal. But the workers keep doing so, and they get their demands met. And interestingly, they are also paid for the days that they go on strike, as well, um, which is a very huge concession to the workers. Of course, these practices vary across provinces, but in the one that I'm looking at, most of the times, workers are paid for the days that they go on strike, and they assume that this is just what they deserve, <laughs> because it's the business which does wrong to them.
1: In relation to Lucy's question, I'm looking at the violence on the part of the labor, um, how much violence when things turns nasty, or the claims are not met peacefully by either employer or the state? So how, uh, on the labor side, um, what, um, uh, how much violence uh, involved? Um, and also labor's claim um, it, that could be mixed by nationalist protests, especially when there's uh, yeah. um, instance of anti-China protests when that directed to Chinese-owned factories, the the, the workers destroy those factories, and some even some Taiwanese factories. they were affected. Um, so uh, this you know these legal claims could be mixed up with the political or nationalistic um, approach, as you like. And also, when we look about within the labor, are there any? gender differences because yeah. much of the labor intensive export industry they're filled with female workers yeah. and how if there are any difference in their approach in, in terms of resistance yeah
2: um, thanks for those questions uh, the, the violence as I mentioned before is, is kept to the minimum minimum um, I mean there are um, strikes that last for a few days and the workers keep going keep um, not turning up to their work or keep you know gathering around the companies um, until their demands are met. But the, the, the violence is kept to the minimum. And from the Vietnamese media I, I can see that there's no violence conflicted on, on um, it, sorry, inflicted on the workers for um, those prolonged strikes. Um, of course, any time we go to the strike since we also see a civil security force standing there, making sure that everything is not going out of control. Um, I, I don't think that it is uh, the interest of the, the Vietnamese state to uh, crack down on strikes, um, because it goes against their rhetoric of, you know, looking after the workers or representing the workers. Um, on the national list, protests that you mentioned, those are very interesting cases and I didn't have a chance to look closely at them. Um, so in 2014, I think there are huge waves of strikes against um, the South China Sea. And from my understanding, um, those protests are just the tip of the iceberg. So it's a chance for the workers to um, mobilize and gather to together to as to express their grievances against the companies that have exploited them and abused them for many years. So it's, it's just a, a tipping t- a point for them to, to raise their voices, of course, because I didn't get to know um, those strikes when they occur. And, I don't re- and I, in, in the union's records, the, those drives are not <laughs> um, recorded in, um, in the documents. So I really don't know whether there's any legal claims there raised by the workers apart from the nationalist sentiment. Um, on gender differences, that's a great question. And as you're right in saying that a lot of the FDI companies um, are filled with the female workers who are doing manual tasks. You know, for instance, in garment, electronics, and footwear. Um, um, so a lot of these. FDI FDI enterprises, um, the the workers who go on starting those enterprises are are female, about 70 to 80 percent of them are female. But that doesn't mean that the male workers do do not have any grievances. Of course, they have grievances as well, because when I do the interviews, I talk to uh, workers of both genders, and I don't really see differences in the way that they articulate their grievances. Of course, the female workers are more um, articulate because because of the gender, like I'm female and they're female, so they are more happy to share the stories with me. But in terms of you know, the bigger claims, for instance, concerning wage, the bonus, um, the treatment of the management, the, the male and the female workers both express similar grievances. Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, I just wonder if you can observe any. Maybe- Recently, there was one uh, one fight for right to strike in Turkey, and it's parent company companies based in uh, France. So French citizens were with the uh, movement based on solidarity, and maybe in the case the human rights framework can be can have an influence yeah. uh, as a universal language. So I just wanted you could something any other things in Vietnam. Um. So the trade unions in Vietnam, because they are violated with the Communist Party, they don't actively reach out to international partners. Of course, there are international partners coming to work with the Vietnamese trade unions, and they are active in things like policy advocacy, um, capacity enhancement, training, legal giving legal aid. So those are all the activities that are in line with the interests of the state. There's nothing going beyond. Um, what the state allows or permitted. Um, and at a local level, there are more um, NGO's projects coming in that support the workers in terms of you know raising legal knowledge and legal awareness. But again, they all operate within what is permitted within the state, within the law. Um, you mentioned...
3: Uh, you, 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 you mentioned the state, in a sense, is, is more benevolent to workers than the Chinese state, has been and so on. Um, you mentioned that a minimum wage. Was the minimum wage in any way realistic? In other words, all right, I, I'm, what I'm going on is, is what I know of workers in Taiwan in the 1980s. The government would set a minimum wage. You would never get anybody to work for the minimum wage. The actual going rate for Unskilled female factory workers was double the government-set minimum wage, and it was you know so the the, the the minimum wage was there just to show people oh the government has some concern, but it was completely unrealistic. And the other the other thing I just wanted to comment on is that uh, you mentioned female female workers, um, the Nike st- the strike against Nike was immortalized by an American. Uh, writer of comics named Gary Trudeau in a strip called Doonesbury. And this went for months and months, where he would have cartoons about about this, this female, Vietnamese female worker striking against Nike and so on. And it was very strongly anti-Nike uh, in, in, in its tenure, tenor. Um, I can give you the reference uh, for that if, you, if you'd like to look it up. It's, it's quite interesting.
2: Yes, yes, thanks. Um, I think the minimum wage in Vietnam has a long tradition. <laughs> like um, back in the early 2000s, and 2000, 2005, like the, the Vietnamese government freezes increasing the minimum wage for one or two years. And then the workers went on strike to demand an increase in the minimum wage. Um, so since then, the, the, the government has increased the rate every year. And it depends on you know the negotiation amongst the employers and employees representatives at the national level. In reality, um, you're right, as I mentioned in my talk, the the workers are paid a wage that is higher than the minimum wage, and they keep claiming or demanding a higher wage that is more suited to their productivity, their skills, their seniority. Um, Actually, to to the workers, the minimum wage has, I think, a, a symbolic meaning, because In Vietnam, the government issues an increase of minimum wage around November or December this year, and then it's going to be applicable on the next year. So the rise in minimum wage is a chance for workers to demand wage rise in the new year. So the workers um, say that because the government raises the minimum wage, we hope that this is going to trigger some actions from the manager Of course, they want a raise that is higher than the minimum one, um, that takes into account their skills and qualifications as well. But I think this had a symbolic meaning, and it it gives them a tool, and a leverage, to um, raise their demands for higher wages. Um, Of course, there is um, rumors around that say that the minimum wage is not a very useful tool for them, and it needs to be reformed. But I haven't seen any reformed yet. It just Mm. keeps going up. Um, over the years. And also there are different rates of minimum wages as well based on the living conditions of different provinces and cities. So the most expensive provinces have the highest minimum wage than uh, going on. Um, the, the, y- y- your, your sharing stories of the anti strike movement is very interesting. And I do think that in the early days of um, Nike, com- Nike companies established in Vietnam, there's rampant legal violations and there's also a uh, huge protest of the workers in those companies. However, I think that those, those brands are becoming more aware of their corporate social responsibility, so they have tried to improve the working conditions in um, those factories. And interestingly, in the province that I'm looking at, the Nike companies are often the, the best <laughs> companies in terms of, you know, giving, uh, paying wages and giving workers bonuses and benefits compared to the other, not compared to um, the home countries. Steve. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, to, uh, just
4: a, a couple of questions. Uh, one, so thinking, is, is, um, I started off thinking, is there, are there any in the constitution? That we have yeah. Uh, and that change we doing all that now uh, for foreign investors going in, those sorts of things. And everything you said, it really sort of seems like it's a um, controlled strike in a In other words, is it a, a means of society control? but it kind of, uh, kind of like a uh, uh, pressure could just release a bit of tension and controlled everything. So if you could extend this to across the region, Singapore and you know, the, the unions being absorbed by the state. Any other countries, uh, that might be a way forward for the research as well yep. to just uh, see where this fits into
2: other sort of states and resources. Well. Yep, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, so the rights that the workers claim, I do think that they have some resonance with what is written in the Constitution. The Vietnamese Constitution recognizes the rights to work and also the the rights of human beings, not human rights. Um, yeah, um, and uh, but but they don't really um, elaborate on how those rights are linked to to what to the rights that are um, given in the, the labor code. For instance, the labor code gave workers the rights to strike, but in Vietnam, there's no right for people to you know go on doing protests or collectively, um, collectively organize with each other. So I I. Um, And and those rights are not what I find amongst the workers. They normally are concerned with their social economic rights or even broader rights as human beings when they are abused by the management or when they are treated badly um, on the shop floor. Uh, Also, I think um, some of the rights in the Constitution also resonate with the socialist propaganda of the state as well. So instead of saying that this claims of rights come from either the constitution or the socialist ideology, I just keep the possibility open, saying that these are the sources that workers draw upon in raising their claims. and um, Of course, there are overlaps between those institutions and discourses in a way that makes sense of their rights. Um, I don't um, really have that ambition of um, comparing Vietnam with the situation of the unions across the, the regions, but I do think that is a great observation that you are making. Um, what I'm um, What I think is an interesting issue coming forward is Vietnam's um, greater integration with the global economy. And recently, is entering the CPTPP trade agreements that has the conditions for improving um, labor in Vietnam. Um, Previously, the TPP used to give hope of labor reform in Vietnam because it it says that Vietnam has to allow for independent trade unions. Of course, when you look at the document, by the Vietnamese government. The statement is that yes, we, have, we allow for independent trade unions or, or indeed workers, collective representatives, but those institutions have to be registered with the VGCL, which is the official trade unions. So basically, there's own co and control over there. And coming forward, um, I really don't know whether the, the, those trade agreements really make any difference to union structure in Vietnam for now. Because when I talked with um, a labor lawyer in Vietnam regarding um, the, the possibility of independent trade unions, he said that if you want to allow independent trade unions, you have to change the Constitution. Because Article 4 of the Constitution says that the VGCL is the legitimate political representative of the Vietnamese working class. So now you have more representatives coming in than. What is the role of the VGCL? That is the big question.
5: Thank you very much. Very interesting. Very short questions. The first one: What is not legal is uh, to form a union, or there is no right of association, because it seems to be very legalist. I'm, I'm fascinating how different from it is from Yeah. Uh, and in the case of that, the union is not. Uh, legal, like the union, have they organized more informal unions? Because, for instance, in Chile, it's not uh, you cannot actually form unions by law in the public service, but the officials organize informal yes. associations that does almost the same protection of the of, of, of um, the workers. And the second question. Uh, what happened in between, I think it was in 2001 and 2000, 2010 and 2011, I think, when well, there was a sharp decrease in <coughs> strikes. Yeah. Something happened in the country, what, or or it was, I, I don't know, what, what happened in there that it actually yeah. decreased?
2: Yeah, um, thanks. Um, so um, so this is what I draw from the Vietnamese Labor Court in terms of workers' um, participation in union. Um, Workers have the right to establish and join a trade union and participate in trade union activities. Uh, yeah. So it's is very um, broad and way, but in reality, the workers haven't really established any trade unions of their own. Um, they mostly depend on their social networks. Um, since they are migrants from the rural to the urban areas, they live in you know, the rental units. And this is like the shelter for them to share their grievances or problems and to, to spread around their ideas about legal rights or legal knowledge. I'm, I'm not sure about the informal unions in the country that you, in Chile you're talking about. But if there is such thing happening in Vietnam, operating at the informal level, um, I believe that over time it will be co-opted by the state to a certain extent. Um, and the, the groups of the workers that receive legal training that I observe in a case study province um, previously, it gave, they, they gave me some hope that there is something going on, dynamic going on underground, that they will form a networks of uh, people um, representing the workers. However, that hasn't happened, mostly because Oxfam is funding from the program in 2013, and the program is transferred to the official unions, which basically abandoned <laughs> the workers. So their voices or their activism are not sustained um, in that regard. On um, the sharp decrease on strides, that is not the trend in the province, but it's also a national trend as well. And I think that there are a couple of factors contributing to that. First, this could be the inflation is now um, under control. Um, the rising cost is not as much as in previous year. Macroeconomic um, development is also stability, instability after the um, economic depression. Um, sorry, after the economic recession and um, also over the year the state has becoming more active, more proactive in, you know, mobilizing the employers to raise wages for the workers. So it's interesting that um, a lot of the strikes occur around January or February, which is the early of the year where the workers would expect a wage rise. So the state has taken a proactive approach. They are very busy around January and February to monitor the business in terms of raising wages or announcing wage rights for the workers. And any business that hasn't announced that will be reminded by the local authorities. Let, let's do it, otherwise the workers will go on strike. So it's a very busy time for the local authorities to put a check, to keep a check on businesses complying with the law. And I think that is the, the also a factor that contributing to the decline in strike. Of course, I also see that there are um, Several companies in the province, when workers keep going on strike every year, like it, it, just just happen. As long as they haven't seen any wage rise, <coughs> as they, as long as they are treated badly by the management, it just keep going on, going on over the year. So the um, intervention by the state is effective to some extent, but it's not not in all cases, not in every case.
1: Okay,
2: that's it for today. Thanks okay, to thanks a lot. Thank
1: you. Thank you.